Hi, everybody. How you doing? It's my first time speaking at Veritas in a while. I spoke years ago before you guys were even in high school, probably. But uh, it's good to be back. It's fun to be here. If you're new here, if you haven't been here this semester, we're in the middle of a series where we're talking on hard questions and uneasy answers when it comes to Christianity. There are hard questions and there are uneasy answers. Now, let me just give you a little tip. That's true for all of life. All of life is full of hard questions and uneasy answers. But we're looking at it when it comes to whether or not we should believe the Bible, whether or not we should trust the Christian message, whether or not that the, the, what the Bible teaches and the claims of Christianity are worth the kind of faith that causes us to see our lives, interpret our lives, direct our lives, guide our lives, that causes us to sacrifice, to invest in living according to the Bible's bigger story. And, and, and the thing is, is that when it comes to hard questions, like we've been looking at this semester, some, you know, like we've said, not easy answers, but the main thing is, is that we have, to, we have to keep finding answers. We have to face questions head on. Tonight I want to talk about, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Now, in all honesty, it's a little bit like asking the question, hasn't my sense of smell kind of shown that blue is not real? You're, 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 we're kind of mixing categories when we talk about science and Christianity because the things that science measures and proves are not the same category of the things that the Bible speaks to. I mean, there's some overlap when it comes to certain things, but the overall context of the Bible and the things that it's speaking to are not the same category of science. And so it's difficult to say science has disproved that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, how, how, how does science disprove that Jesus rose from the dead? Or that science has disproved other things that the Bible teaches? I think a better question, a better way to ask it is, hasn't, hasn't science pretty much made Christianity less believable? Because, see, I, I, maybe I, you're like me. I don't want to believe something that's not true. I'm wired a certain way. I've always been wired a certain way where I always have at least one eye that's skeptical on every story. Even every verse, verse I read in the Bible, I've got one skeptical eye that says, now, is that true? Has science made believing the Bible, has science made believing Christianity Less believable? That's always a question we should be asking and trying to answer with an open mind. Because we don't want to believe something that's not real. I don't want to live my life believing things that aren't real. Life is hard enough. It's full of hard questions and uneasy answers. The last thing I want to do is try to live a life that's not in reality. And my guess is that's true for you too. But as looking at these kinds of questions honestly and, and having an open mind, if we're going to do that, I want to do that as long as we're talking about what 
biblical Christianity actually teaches. I don't want to do that with what traditional Christianity may have taught here and there or what some certain group has been teaching lately over here that they're excited about. I don't, I don't want to have to defend any of that. What I want to do is talk about and wrestling with what biblical Christianity actually teaches. And, and that's, that's a different thing. If not only do I want to not get off on traditions and how they may have shaped, reshaped Christianity, but I also don't want to have somebody take some verse, some obscure verse that says something weird out of the context of what the whole Bible is saying, not understanding how different genre of literature were used 3,500 years ago when some parts of the Bible were written in a language that's so completely different than English, to take some verse in the Bible that's been translated into English from a text that was written 3,500 years ago and take it out of context because it says something kind of strange to our worldview and then make it sound silly and say, see, science has made that unreal, untrue. An example of that, and it's a little bit of a, you know, a, 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 a casual conversation that he's having, but Sam Harris uh, you may or may not know who Sam Harris is, but he was somebody anybody your age would have known 15 years ago. He was one of the what's called the four horsemen of the new atheism that these authors, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, uh, others, that, that, that they were uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett. I wanted to finish out the four. Uh, but they kind of made atheism intellectually popular again. And you may not realize this, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, atheism was not a popular belief. But they made it popular again through challenging, through science, the, the veracity, the truthfulness of all religions. And, and particularly, they picked on Islam and Christianity. And so a lot of the reason why atheism is sort of the air we breathe in a lot of ways in our culture, although I think, I think that's ending uh, because it never can last long because the soul knows there's something more. But, but the reason why it's been there is because of some of the things that Sam Harris and others have written. Maybe you know who he is. But here's a, a little clip I saw of what he's talking about when he's talking about the verse in the Bible that says that Jesus ascended into heaven and will return from heaven. And so he's sort of just saying what he says here, if the sound works. It didn't work before when we were watching the other videos. So let's see if it works now. Nope. Okay, so he's saying it's kind of ridiculous to believe in a Jesus that ascended to heaven. Where is he? Because, see, we have all these great space telescopes now that show us all kinds of pictures of heaven, and none of them have really shown us a picture of Jesus. So obviously that verse in the Bible is not true. I mean, I've paraphrased it. He's probably smarter than I am, said it a better way. But he's basically saying there's a verse right there we know is not true by science because we have telescopes in space and there turns out there's no Jesus up there. Now, when you do that kind of stuff, you're obviously taking verses that have this incredible poetic imagery to them and are trying to give us a picture of something more real than just the simple reading, but you're making it stay within the simple reading. And those are always easy to debunk with some, you know, well, don't we have telescopes in space? And there's a sense in which atheists use science to project a kind of confidence. You ever, you ever been in an argument with somebody and the, the most confident one wins? But when you start asking questions, 
you start tearing away their confidence, it starts to become a different argument. What's happened is that, I don't know if this is true, but like with your professors, who are usually way uh, more experienced than you, they've been teaching the same stuff for year after year, they've been dealing with college students that have the same exact questions every year, and so they've developed really good answers to it. And so they bait Christian students by setting things up, knowing that somebody's going to say something, and they've got the answer already figured out, they've already been doing this for 15, 20 years, and it makes Christianity look really dumb. But when you start digging deeper, when atheists use science to make Christianity look really dumb and make it less believable to us, when you start digging deeper, you start to realize that they're not exactly talking about what the Bible actually teaches, and they're not actually talking about what science has actually proved. And either they're confused or they're trying to confuse you. Here's what's amazing. I, 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 There's this gal named Dr. Sarah Salviander. She's an astrophysicist who was an atheist. And then through her, her, her astrophysicist studies, uh, getting her Ph.D. when she was in grad school, she became a Christian and has become a vocal Christian. And she says one of the things that led her to become a Christian was when she began to study the universe and see how it really made sense out of the Bible, properly understood and all this kind of stuff. But she had a tweet about a year ago or so. She said this, three mysteries that have stubbornly evaded naturalistic explanations. In other words, these are three mysteries that naturalistic science, if you just think that all there is is the material natural world, there are three mysteries that have not been answered by naturalistic explanations. One is the origin of the universe. Second, the origin of life. And third, the origin of consciousness. Now, those are pretty big questions to not have answers. Oh, okay, you don't have answers to that? Well, that's kind of a big Twinkie. I mean, those are kind of big things. And if you say somehow that you've proven Science has proven the big questions of life and made Christianity look silly, but you really haven't proven the origin of the universe and, uh, or anything about how that happened or the origin of life or the origin of consciousness. Those are three, three big things. For example, the origin of the universe. You know, with something when I was a kid, uh, well, actually not when I was a kid, but reading authors and reading scientists and reading atheist philosophers that wrote in the early 1900s, late 1800s, uh, the debate was, ever since even since classical times, the debate was that the universe was sort of a, a static constant, a static state. It was always the same. It was eternal. The universe is the one thing that's eternal. But then through more advanced scientific discoveries, they developed they, something called, they, not developed, they discovered something called the microwave echo, I think back in 1960s. Bell Laboratories was doing some experiments, and they, dis, they, dis, they, they, they discovered the entire universe evenly throughout the entire universe has this kind of echo that they began to realize is left over from the Big Bang this explosion of the universe into existence suddenly in a split second. The entire universe, everything in the universe is, has exploded in a split second from nothing. And that the echo of that still 
radiates throughout the universe evenly everywhere. Well, that was one thing, and then they discovered things like the, the ability to see red infrared light and the ability to see that, that was called the red shift, and that means that in physics, when something comes to you in a red infrared part of the spectrum, it shows that it's moving away from you. And they began to discover that, that the universe is moving away from itself, that everything is expanding. And there are other things that well as well, but by the end of the 20th century, and still today, the dominant theory of the origin of the universe is the Big Bang, that everything that exists in the universe, all the galaxies, all the stars, everything that exists, exploded into existence in a split second, immediately, suddenly, from nothing. Now, that's a pretty big worldview shifter when you all of a sudden have to answer the question, now, wait a minute, the entire universe came immediately into existence from nothing. Well, what causes that? Everything that has a beginning has a cause. And so it began to become something that was really uncomfortable for atheists and their science because now all of a sudden science was showing something that they didn't want to admit and that definitely had theological implications. It very much sounded like the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that was not something that was comfortable. It got even worse. So at the, right around the turn of the century, give or take 10 years, other things have come now where we, we now know that, and this is going to be uh, uh, really technical, but the, the, the settings of the nuclear force in the universe, there are six big settings that are so minutely fine-tuned that if they weren't exactly at the settings they are now, stars would have never formed and life would have, planets would have never formed and life would have never formed anywhere in the universe especially Earth, including Earth. And so like scientists like the Cambridge professor and a popular astronomer, uh, a guy named Martin Rees, wrote a book, and it's called the, uh, it's, it's, it's the uh, Just Six Numbers, and it's talking about those six forces, and they're so finely, minutely tuned that if they were any different in the slightest way, there wouldn't be any life, there wouldn't be any planets, there wouldn't be any stars. And the probability of it, and this happened right at the second the Big Bang happened, the second the universe exploded into existence, these strong, these nuclear forces were, were so finely tuned immediately. And the probability of them being tuned to what they are now where there's life on earth the probability that there would be life on earth, the probability that there would be a universe that could have life in it, is just one in, and the kitchen's number, it's one in billions of trillions. Not one in the billion, not one in the trillion, one in billions of trillions that these would be so fine-tuned, these six knobs might be a way to think about it, would be so fine-tuned that would allow life and planets and stars in the universe when it didn't have to be. It was a billions of trillions of chances that it would not be that way. And so this became really super uncomfortable for, again, atheists using science to justify a materialistic uh, worldview. And so it, uh, it, 
a guy named Paul Davies. He's an astronomer at uh, Arizona State University, taught at, uh, at uh, Cambridge before that. Really well published. He's written over 30 science books. And, and he used to be the chair of the uh, SETI, this, uh, what it was, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He is a, he's got, he's got his, his science is in uh, quantum field theory and astrophysics and in astrobiology. And, and he wrote a book recently called The Goldilocks Dilemma, not too recent, but about 10 years ago, called The Goldilocks Dilemma. And he's talking about how this fine tuning in the universe it's, it, 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 it's a problem for atheistic scientists. But this guy, Paul Davies, is an agnostic. He's not a believer. But he's saying this is a real big mystery. He calls it the Goldilocks, the just right, not too much, not too that way, enigma. That's a problem. And so he writes this in his book. He says, scientists have long been aware that the universe seems strangely suited to life. Like, it's weird. like, why would it be so strangely suited to life? But they mostly chose to ignore it. It was an embarrassment. It looked too much like the work of a cosmic designer. See, this is interesting because it, it, it's, it's, uh, what he's saying here is that it's such an embarrassment to, create, to, to atheists that the universe looks not only that the Big Bang that, that came from nothing, but it's so ridicu ridiculously improbably fine-tuned for, for life that it looks like there's a cosmic designer. So here's what happened in the last 20 years or so because of this discovery scientifically. Uh, and you've seen it in all your superhero movies and you've seen it in Star Trek and all that kind of stuff. Almost anything you watch now, it has it in some way. And that was developing this theory called the multiverse theory. theory. That there are an infinite number of universes. And ours just popped into existence from the multiverse. And the reason why it looks ridiculously and probably fine-tuned is because we just happen to live in the universe that created life, the one in billions of trillions that created life, and so here we are to observe it and ask the question. But we're just one in an infinite number, not even one in billions of trillions, but we are one in an infinite number of universes out there. And so it's not any big special deal, we're just, the, we're just in the lucky one. But it, it doesn't really show that there's a cosmic designer. The problem is, is this based on solid scientific evidence? So again, Paul Davies, Dr. Paul Davies, the astrophysicist, he says, in spite of its widespread appeal and its apparently neat solution to the Goldilocks enigma, why this universe is so fine-tuned, ridiculously fine-tuned, there are many scientists who dismiss the multiverse as speculation too far. The multiverse comes across as, to many scientists, a cheap way out. Because of the implications of a cosmic designer, it just looks too much like we're just trying to grab at straws. And it just becomes something that is just sort of a, a grasping it a cheap way out. He goes on to say this. He says, another frequently voiced criticism of the multiverse is that it isn't science because it can't be tested by experiment or observation. 
So in this respect, the multiverse theory hovers on the borderline between science and fantasy. You get one more slide. He says, although a strong motivation for introducing the multiverse concept is to get rid of the need for design, because it looks like there's a cosmic designer if you don't have the multiverse idea, something must be accepted on faith even in scientific accounts. In other words, what Paul Davies is saying, again, he's an agnostic, he's not a believer, he's just being honest and saying, look, the multiverse theory, it might be true, but there really is no scientific, solid scientific evidence for it. And most scientists will admit that it's just sort of a desperate attempt to try to explain away what appears to be a designer to the universe. And he says it's kind of science and fantasy. That's the mixture of it. But it's not solid science. You have to kind of have fantasy be a part. And so he says this in that last little part. He says, either way, whether you're going to believe in a multiverse and no designer of the universe, or whether you're going to believe, say, a Christian account of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, for example. Both require faith. And neither can say science proves or disproves their point. So here's the thing. It, it, it's a, if, if somebody who has this overconfidence, which people all the time talk to me with, an overconfidence that, that science has answered the questions, the big questions of life, and they haven't answered any of them. They haven't even answered how the universe came into existence. They haven't really answered how the universe has this ridiculously improbable fine-tuning for life except to just sort of come up with another alternative that requires just as much faith as it does to believe that the universe was created by a designer. The God of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But not just the origin of the universe, and not just the fine-tuning of the universe, but the origin of life itself. Now, this is what's amazing to me is that when, when an atheist uses science to sort of have this confidence that it's made Christianity less and less believable, a lot of it has to do with evolution and things like that. And they think that science has shown uh, how life came about and all these kinds of things. But, but the interesting thing is, again, what Paul Davies writes here in his book, because see, he's an astrobiologist. Now, it doesn't seem like to be a lot of work for an astrobiologist at this point. But uh, again, he has to understand biology and how we might find it on other planets or might find it in the universe somewhere. So he really understands cells, understands the biology of, of living things. He says, further confusion, in other words, scientists get confused, non-scientists get confused when it comes to the origin of life. Because people think it's been answered by science and it hasn't been. So he says, further confusion often arises from a failure to distinguish between the evolution of life and the emergence of life. Two different things. The evolution of life, which is a species advancing from lower species into higher species through mutation, and the emergence of life, which is there's deadness in the universe and all of a sudden there's a living cell that's reproducing. He says those are two different things. How life got started in the first place is not something that science has answered. He goes on and he says it has to be admitted. And again, he's an agnostic, so he's not, he, he, not a Christian. He says it has to be admitted 
that the origin of life remains a deep mystery. But that cannot be used as an argument against Darwinian evolution because biogenesis, the beginning of life, is not part of evolutionary theory. How many of you knew that? How many of you have been told that evolution has answered the question how life started? I mean, I've, I've been told that all the way through college. But he's saying that evolution has never been about the origin of life. Nobody knows, nobody knows how that happened. Now, you've heard theories, but they're theories without any solid scientific evidence. He's saying it be, the, the, the truth is it still remains a mystery. It has to be admitted that it still remains a mystery. We don't have a clue how life started on Earth or anywhere else in the universe, for that matter, although it's never been discovered anywhere else in the universe. It's still not answered. Thomas Nagel, who's a famous atheist uh, philosopher, and he's written tons of books, uh, 12 books on philosophy, teaches at New York University, taught at Princeton before that. And he wrote in his book, Cos Mind and Cosmos, he writes this. He says, and again, this is an atheist. He says, no viable account, even a purely speculative one, just a speculative account, seems to be available of how a system as staggeringly functionally complex and information-rich as a self-reproducing cell. Just take a single cell, and it's, every cell is self-reproducing. If you really understood how hard it is to come up with a self-reproducing cell, it's just staggeringly, he says, complex information as rich as a self-reproducing cell. And he goes on and he says, controlled by DNA, RNA, or some predecessor, predecessor could have arisen by chemical evolution alone from a dead environment. So you have a dead environment of the universe. There's no life in the universe, and there is no answer. Not even speculation, he says. How a first cell started from a dead universe, but not just a first cell, but that first cell have to, has to be a reproducing cell that has all the RNA and all the DNA information in it to reproduce in its very first try. He's saying nobody has even a clue how that would happen. And he goes on, he says this. He says, there are also card-carrying scientific naturalists. That's an atheist scientist, only believes the material world is all there is. Like Francis Crick, who's a neuroscientist, who's an atheist. Uh, he he's dead now, but, but, but back then, he, who say that it seems almost, like, let me, I, I butchered the quote. Let me start over. There are also card-carrying scientific naturalists like Francis Crick who say that it seems almost a miracle. Almost a miracle. See, they haven't even answered the big questions. So the overconfidence of, you know, you're a Christian, you're living your life by faith, well, I'm living my life by that which can be proved scientifically, is ridiculously confused because they, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that even when it comes to the very self-evident realities that we all face every day. Most of our lives, most of the things we believe in our lives cannot be proven. They don't flow from scientific evidence. Love. Justice. Equal rights. 
None of these, none of these things flow from scientific evidence. And we might have an explanation for what love is happening in the brain with our brain waves when we feel love, but that's not saying the same thing as love is real. Or we might have a scientific evidence for why we think equal rights helps us survive as a species, but that doesn't mean equal rights is a real thing. It's a real right and wrong. It just means it's a kind of a survival hack. But it's not really right or wrong. Paul Kalanithi, who's a neuroscientist, he was a neuroscientist. He died of lung cancer, 37 years old. But he was a neuroscientist at Stanford, and he wrote a book when he was dying called When Breath Becomes Air. And he was an atheist who started looking into it, and he says this in his book, When Breath Becomes Air. He says, during my sojourn in ironclad atheism, the primary arsenal leveled against Christianity had been its failure on empirical grounds. In other words, you can't prove it. There is no proof of God, therefore it is unreasonable to believe in God. He goes on, he says, the problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics, now I think what he means there is just the arbiter of reality. Metaphysics is everything, everything that's not part of the physical world. So that would be true. To make science the arbiter of everything and therefore even things that are not part of the physical world is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning. To consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. Everybody knows it's not the world we live in. He goes on, he says, science is predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life. Hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, Suffering, virtue. These are the things that our lives are made of. And they're the things that we self-evidently know are real. And he's saying if you're only going to live your life based upon what you can prove scientifically, you don't have a category for any of those things. Here's what he's saying. It's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith to say that you only believe that which can be proved scientifically and then just turn around and live your life on self-evident realities that don't flow from that. That's a leap of faith. So again, how exactly has science made it less likely that Christianity is true? Where would that evidence be? What discovery has been made that would cause, that's, that's that, that makes Christianity less believable. I, I, I don't know of one, one scientific evidence that would make Christianity seem less believable. If you asked the average student on campus, are there any Christian science professors here? Are there any science professors that are strong Christians? the average student would probably say, no, I doubt that. I wouldn't think so. And they would be wrong. I don't know if the video works. I don't know if the sound works or not. You want to try it or has anybody done anything? Okay. Let's take a moment here and introduce you to some science professors at Mizzou who are very strong Christians. I've honestly, even as a Christian, been surprised with how many Christians I, I come in contact with through my work. I studied um, how a single cell becomes an organism, and it's such a 
complex process. I mean, there are so many different points that it could go completely haywire. The fact that it ever went well and you ever got the whole organism was a miracle. And then the fact that it happens all the time, over and over in such an amazing way, really just strengthened my faith. To see the things that we're able to see under a microscope and explore the things we're able to explore and really try to tease apart the intricacies of the way that our bodies work, really it just encourages my faith. Science is God's, you know? He, he established it and he gives us the know-how how to learn about his creation, but there's nothing that disproves him in any way. Science cannot explain everything. Science was, was started by people who understood that there's, there has to be a foundation to science and that, that foundation, the best foundation, is, is that of biblical Christianity. Science is a methodology that helps us explore God's universe, but it's very limited. It doesn't help us explain things like love, our emotions, things that are really hard. You can't just grab love and hold on to it like you can a plant or clothing. I can use the empirical world to help me understand the nature of God and the, the structure of God's creation. But as a transcendent being, God is more than the world. And it just simply, there, there's no reason why my understanding of a transcendent being is limited to my understanding of the physical world in and of itself. It really would take more faith to believe that there is no God and that everything that we experience or the world that we see is based simply on the random interaction of molecules. And I know people fervently believe there's no God, but I'm kind of going, dude, it's like a big universe. And if I were to draw the universe, it'd be like one tiny, tiny little dot. And you're going to make a pronouncement sitting here in Columbia or Boston or San Francisco or London. I'm sure there's no God in anywhere of all of creation. Now you could say that, but it's really a faith statement, isn't it? I choose by faith to believe there's no God. This God who created everything creates some of the most magnificent structures and anatomy and physiology that the human mind can, can barely comprehend. The more we find out about how the human body is put together, the more amazing it is that, that God did all of this. You know what science has actually shown us? They've shown us that the Earth is part of a solar system around a star. The star is so ridiculously massively huge that if you had like a fishbowl, the Earth would be like a BB inside of it compared to the size of the sun, which is just another star. And that our star is just one of hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. Now, this is not our galaxy. You can't get a picture of your own galaxy like this. But this is another galaxy. And our galaxy, you can see, like, when you see the Milky Way in that one photo, you're looking back at the disk of our galaxy. It's just incredible. But every galaxy has hundreds of billions of stars like our sun that, that, that are billions of light years across when it comes to the size of a galaxy. It's just unbelievable how big a galaxy is.
Now, you know, with this new thing called the James Webb Telescope, and it's amazing because I mentioned the infrared light, the red shift light, that, that up until now, telescopes haven't done a great job of seeing the red part of the spectrum. And so the James Webb Telescope is, specializes in the red part of the spectrum. And so what that means is we can see galaxies that are moving away from us, that are farther away. And so like this picture right here, of a lot of these we hadn't seen before. Now here's, you know what this photo is by the James Webb Telescope? So these are all galaxies. Everything, every little disk type thing you see here, these are <laughs> galaxies that are five, you know, 4.6 billion light years away. Now the thing about this photo right here, here's, it's a part of space if you stood out and you had a piece of sand between your two fingers and you put your arm fully stretched and you held that piece of sand there, that's the size of that photo in the universe and all those galaxies. Just in that little part of the sky are all these galaxies. It is ridiculous how big this universe is. Now, I don't know. Everybody interprets the same thing differently. But for me, when I understand how big the universe is, it doesn't make Christianity less believable to me at all. It makes it more amazing. Because, see, the Bible says that, in a way, the universe is a picture, a finite picture of God. So the God that created this universe, the God that created this universe, if the universe is a picture of God, and this is just one piece of sand held out, and the power of God, the intelligence of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, but everything true about God, this is a picture of a finite measurement of that. So when the Bible says he is good, this is a picture of the vastness of the goodness of God, the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. It makes Christianity amazing because when you really get it, when you really think about it, if Christianity is true, that when it says in the first few verses of the Gospel of John that Jesus is the one who created everything that has been made, nothing has been made that he, hasn't been, that he didn't make, and that he is the giver of life. The Bible's explanation for the origin of the universe, the Bible's explanation for the origin of life, the Bible's explanation for the reality of love and mercy and equal uh, rights and justice and all these things we just know are self-evidently true that none of which flow from scientific evidence at all the bible's still in my opinion the best explanation for how all this comes and what's amazing about the bible is it shows that god has gone all in in becoming a human forever and dying to take the genesis 3 death that the human condition earned because of our rebellion against God and taking that death upon himself because he loves us with the kind of love that is infinite as the, I mean, is more infinite than the universe is vast. That love caused him to forever become human, to rise from the dead and to bring a resurrection to this world and a creation that he intended it to be when, when he created the world. And that's the story I want my life to be in. Because once you get that he has gone all in, once you get that the God that created this universe is all in on you, it makes you want to go all in on him. Have you thought about that? 
I mean, really, when you think about your life, would you rather live for the God that created the universe or live the small, little, small room, low ceiling world that you have that's just about your life and the things that for us is this big, huge story? Let me pray for us. God, you are the creator. You are the source of all existence and you are the giver of all life. And it is an amazing story that you have created us in and called us in and enabled us to be in because you have taken death for us and you have risen from the dead to give us a a resurrection, a bodily resurrection on a resurrected earth. When you return and bring your kingdom and we want to be there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.